As we wrap up this book here together this morning, I want us to ponder something together. You're all familiar with last words. We intuitively know that the impact of what is said goes up in the last words spoken. The last words of a book hang in your mind. The last words of a speech bring the impact of the whole speech to bear. The last words of a life are often the most poignant. Last words carry a gravity like nothing else, both because of their significance and the fact that they hang in the air after they are said. And that is precisely what we have ultimately come to in the book of Malachi this morning. The last words of this book, the last words of the Old Testament, and the last words of God for 400 years to his people. After three chapters of challenging Israel's worship of him, what will God say? What will his closing remarks be to the people of Israel? What does he intend to leave them with? Let's read Malachi chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. These are the final words of the Old Testament. Let's pray and ask God's guidance before we work through them together. Father, we sing out with the words of that song, is anyone worthy? And we praise you for the fact that one was worthy, one is worthy. Christ came, the Lion of Judah, the Lamb that was slain, that ransomed us and purchased us. Lord, we confess that in our sinful condition, we don't naturally give you the worship and honor that you deserve. But we praise you that Christ fulfilled what we never could in his life. Lord, as we study these challenging words at the end of Malachi, I do pray that you would take our focus off of ourselves and you would return it back to where it belongs, on you and on Christ. Lord, focus our attention on you. Help us to be worshipers of you. Help us to be amazed by who you are through this text this morning. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, after six major disputes between God and the people, these are the final words from God. No more disputes, no more but you says. They say that, but you says? That sounds really strange, but you understand what I'm saying. Just God's final assessment of the people's worship. As such, I have entitled this week's message, Final Worship final worship. How will God draw his letter to a close in the book of Malachi? Next week, Dimitri is going to be preaching from 
from Ephesians chapter 1 while I teach at middle school camp, and then we're going to jump into 1 Corinthians for our fall study after that. But at this point, we want to bring this theme of final worship to a close. The breakdown of this text, and you may have noticed it as we were walking through, breaks down into the three sections. First, we see a final day in verses 1 through 3. What will this final day look like? What will this final day bring? Then we see a final encouragement in verse 4, what God encourages the people with, what he tells them to do while they wait. And lastly, we see a final promise in verses 5 and 6. A final day, a final encouragement, and a final promise. Let's start with the final day and what that's talking about. He picks up right where he left off last week, chapter 4, verse 1. For behold, the day is coming. For behold, he continues his thought addressing the question of the people from last week. If you were with us last week, you remember that the people were lobbing two accusations against God. They were saying it is vain to serve God because there is no profit in obedience and repentance. Verse 14 of chapter 3 we saw, but you say, or excuse me, you have said it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? They said, there's no profit in following you, Lord. We addressed that a bit last week when we talked about God saying, there is an eternal vision of what's going to take place. Your focus, your vision is what is the problem. Secondarily, they asked, or they, they charged God with saying, there is no punishment for evil or mocking. We saw that in verse 15 last week where we read... And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. And in last week's message, at the end of chapter 3, God promised a distinction will be made between the righteous and the wicked. That distinction becomes clearer and we see the day of the Lord arise in verse 1 of chapter 4. He says this, For behold, the day is coming, what is the day? We have to ask ourselves, what is coming? What is it that he is anticipating? What is this day of the Lord that is coming up for the first time here in our study of Malachi? Now, for this, we need a little bit of background. We need to understand what the rest of the Old Testament has been working. This is a term, the day of the Lord is a term for God's divine intervention into history for his people. It's a moment when God breaks into history to rescue his people. And it's primarily, though not exclusively, used in the Old Testament prophets. You find it littered throughout the Old Testament. And the consistent picture that we see through the Old Testament indicates God's arrival to rescue his people, and it also takes on an end times, a coming judgment idea as well. But here in this text, we see that the day of the Lord brings two things. First, the day of the Lord brings judgment on the wicked. And this is some hard language, but read with me. The day, or behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. This day of the Lord, this final arrival of God on the scene to distinguish between the righteous and the wicked is also to judge the wicked. We see this consuming judgment. Did you pick up on the terminology? It's coming burning. They will be stubble. I will set them ablaze. There's a final nature to this. When God comes to distinguish between the righteous and the wicked, it will be final and it will be consuming. 
We've talked about God's refining fire previously in our study of Malachi, and here we see God's consuming fire. And we see that it leaves nothing behind so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. One of the things that's interesting to note about forest fires, and Jenna and I saw this when we were out in Seattle, is when you get up on the mountains and you look out over the mountains, what you consistently see is you see places where forest fires have burned down a portion of the, fire, or the forest. The, the fire comes through, it burns down the forest, and for a period of time, it's all black and charred and there's no growth. And then at some point, as time goes on, you begin to see the next generation of forests and plants coming up. And it begins to change color as the new forest grows where the old forest has, has been burned down. And actually, people say it's kind of an appropriate natural process in forests where the old has to be burned away so that the next group can come up. That's not the type of burning God is referring to here. Did you notice it? It's not a refining fire that burns off the top and leaves something that will then come up after it. He says, it will leave them neither root nor branch. When God comes on the day of the Lord, it will be final, consuming judgment for the wicked. There will be nothing left. Like, that's a cheery way to start the end of Malachi. Well, hold on, okay? Because we get this but. Because in addition to the day of the Lord being judgment on the wicked, we also see that the day of the Lord brings blessing for the righteous. Look at verse 2 and 3. But for you who fear my name, there it is again, you who fear my name, you who rightly submit yourselves under my authority, who revere and honor and respect me, those that are believers, that remnant of people that are following after God with their whole heart, for those that fear my name, there's hope here. There's a blessing here. And we see three blessings in three metaphors. Follow along with me here. We're going to address each one of them briefly. But for you who fear my name, first metaphor, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. Now, to some degree, to explain this too much is to undermine the potency of that sort of poetic language. I don't have to explain a tremendous amount about this idea, the sun of righteousness, like the sunrise coming up over the hills with light and with warmth will rise with healing in its wings. Now, there is a little bit of debate about this passage, about what exactly is being referred to by this sun here. The King James Bible capitalizes the S in sun to draw an indication that this is messianic or this is referring to the sun, S-O-N, as a sun, S-U-N. But I think the ESV Bible actually gets it correct when you note that there isn't a capitalized S here. Lowercase s, the sun of righteousness, it's an indication of God coming, but I think it's more of a metaphor than it is a messianic prophecy. It's an image meant to call the people's attention to what the effect of God coming on the scene will be. It will be healing in its wings. It indicates safety and security and warmth and light and restoration. When God arrives on the scene, the blessing he brings with him is this healing in its wings. And the imagery is of a sun rising and of like a mother bird protecting its young, bringing healing and safety and security. This is exactly the opposite of what we saw last week and what the people were feeling. And so he says, but for those that fear the Lord, this will be the result. There will be healing 
for those that follow him. Secondarily, there will be joy. After this, he goes on and he paints another picture. He says, you shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. Now, I expect that I don't have to spend a lot of time explaining this one either. This indicates celebration, the opposite of the lament we saw last week. It's a joy, an exuberance, an unbridled thrill of being released from where you've been contained into the open area. But even though I don't have to explain it too much, I'm going to take a moment and I'm going to try. Okay? Because I realize we're in the eastern part of the state here. There's not a lot of experience with cows out here. It was great when I was in Seattle, we were driving and there were some cows along the side of the road and we kept seeing cars parked on the side of the road to take pictures of the cows. <laughs> I'm like, really? Is that, is that a thing? Uh, see, I'm from western Nebraska, okay? They raise a lot of cattle in western Nebraska, okay? And I have a vivid memory from when I was young and I can't remember exactly how old I was, but I was helping with working with calves. And for some reason, the calves had all been had penned up inside a trailer and they'd been transported somewhere and they were waiting to come out of the trailer and to go into the field. And my job, and again, I don't know who gave me this job, it was probably a bad idea for a young kid. My job was to be the gatekeeper. I was supposed to hold up this portion of the fence to make the calves go through this area to where they, I don't know if they were getting tagged or where the case might be, before being let out into the field. You can see where this is going. <laughs> I'd like to say that I did my job valiantly and I was very courageous, but the moment that gate was open and the calves came running at me, I took off, okay? I was done, like, because there was such a movement when the gate was open and they came out that I was scared to death that I was going to get run over. That's the imagery here. They've been penned up, they've been kept in, they've been under oppression, and now the door is open and they come out leaping like calves from the stall. This is unbridled joy at the coming of God. So when God comes, it will bring healing, it will bring joy, and then we get one last metaphor, it will bring victory. Verse 3, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Now, this one gets a little bit harder. They will be ashes under the soles of your feet. I don't think the imagery here is so much trying to indicate our level of participation so much as our victory in that moment. Because in the ancient world, when armies would clash against each other and one army would win, they would take over. And literally, there would be a marching over as the victory was assured. And so he says... You will march over the wicked. They will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, when I show up and I secure the victory. It will be absolute. It will be uncontested. And the victory over the wicked is guaranteed here for the righteous. So the day of the Lord indicates judgment on the wicked, but all taken together... The day of the Lord also means a blessing for the righteous. It means healing. It means joy. It means safety for the righteous believers. The imagery here is much like what you may have experienced on the playground as a kid growing up where one child was bullying or was making fun of another child. And I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands how many of you were the child being made fun of and how many of you were the child making fun of the others, Okay. But you know in that moment, at some point it escalates to the point and the other kids start talking and at some point it gets back to the teacher or the principal, right? 
And there's a moment when both kids look up and realize that the teacher, the principal, has arrived on the scene. And in that moment, there are two very different perspectives, right? For the child doing the bullying, there's an appropriate gasp of anticipation. The teacher has arrived. Judgment has come. For the other child, the teacher arriving is a moment of liberation. I have been saved. Someone has come to take care of the one attacking me. This is the imagery of the day of the Lord. Same coming of God, two different reactions. For those that are against the Lord, a day of fear and judgment. For those that are with him, a day of joy and safety and security. And it is with that final hope in mind that Malachi begins to wrap up his message, his whole book. He issues one final encouragement to the people. And it may surprise us, but I think as we dig into it, it will be an encouragement for us as well. We see a final encouragement. Look at verse 4. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. He says, remember the law. Remember. We've talked about this at different times over the course of Malachi. This memory idea indicates not just intellectual memory, but also action, putting it into practice. It's kind of like when you were a kid and you were walking out the door and your mom says, don't forget to take out the trash. What she means in that moment isn't just intellectually remember. Come back in at the end of the day, say, mom, I remembered I was supposed to take out the trash. Well, did you do it? Well, not really, but I remembered. It's not what we're talking about. When she says, don't forget to take out the trash, she means remember to do it and then do it. He says, remember the law. The implication is then, and then do it. Now, what was the law? Because as 21st century Americans in Lincoln, Nebraska, we read this term, Torah, and we think a list of statutes and regulations. We think of 600 laws in the Old Testament of do's and don'ts. And that's a part of what he's referring to, but Torah here, the, literally think the first five books of the Old Testament that it came to include all of the Old Testament was bigger than that. Put your mind into where the original audience would have been. The first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, leading into the rest of the Old Testament, was the self-revelation of God to his people. It was God disclosing who he was to his people and then giving them the story of his salvation of them. This is why David can sing with such affection of the law in Psalm 19. We read Psalm 19 and we go, how do you have such a passion and an enthusiasm for a list of rules? That's not what he's talking about. The law, the first five books of the Old Testament, was God's self-disclosure to Israel. God is saying here, when he says, remember the law of my servant Moses, he is saying, remember who I am. Remember what I have done for you and what I have commanded you to do. He says, remember who I am. Remember the way the whole book of Malachi started. I have loved you, and you've forgotten that. Remember who I am. Specifically, Malachi has been reminding them of a variety of different things about himself, about who God is. 
Malachi reminded them of God's covenant love, the antidote to their forgetful worship. They had forgotten who God was and what he had done for them. And he says, I have loved you. I still love you. I chose you. Malachi reminded them the next time of God's awesome glory, of God as this awesome father and master of his people, the antidote to their worthless worship. He says, I am a great and awesome and loving God. I am the great king. How can you give me worthless worship? Malachi reminded them of God's true instruction the antidote to their ignorant worship. The priests were not caring what sort of sacrifices were offered to God. The priests were not instructing the people on what true worship of God looked like. And he says, God has provided true instruction in his word as an antidote to your ignorant worship. Malachi had reminded the people of God's patient faithfulness. You remember that week? Their faithless worship. He says, God as a loving groom to his bride, his people, has been so patient and so faithful with you, but you are so faithless to each other and to the wives of your youth. So he reminds them of who God is, that God is patient and faithful with them. He's reminded them of God's perfect justice, the antidote to their impure worship. They were saying God isn't fair, God doesn't care what we do, and he has reminded them that God is perfectly just. Then a few weeks ago with Brad Orta speaking, he reminded them of God's ultimate worth. They were offering this cheap substitute for their worship. And the antidote to that is reminding the people of who God is, that God is ultimately worthy of everything. The antidote to their cheap worship. And then last week we saw God's absolute equity the antidote to the people's fickle worship. They were looking at God and saying, if you respond to me the way I think you should, then I'll offer worship up to you. And Malachi reminds them that God is absolutely fair and equitable. God will ultimately distinguish between the righteous and the wicked. He tells the people the last command that he gives to the people here in Malachi as the Old Testament wraps up is, remember the law. Remember who I am. Remember what I've done. Remember what I have commanded you to do. And in this way, Malachi's overall message joins that of every other Old Testament prophet. He calls the people to remember, to repent, and to obey God's law. And finally, God offers one final promise to Judah, though it comes in a bit of a threat as well. Look at verse 5 and 6. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. We mentioned this when we were in chapter 3, but often the initial question we ask is, who is this? Just like a few weeks ago, I will address that in just a moment. For now, let's just observe what we see talked about this Elijah figure. Three observations about this Elijah figure. First, the coming of Elijah in verse 5. I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. So first observation we have to note about this Elijah figure, this prophet like Elijah, is he will come 
before the day of the Lord. He has talked about this coming day of the Lord, this judgment and this blessing, and before that, there will be a warning. There will be one that will come before the day of the Lord. Keep that in your notes. We'll come back to that here in a moment. Secondly, we see the mission of Elijah. Look at verse 6. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of their children to their fathers. Now wait there. So why is this one sent? What will he do to turn the hearts of children to their fathers, to turn the hearts of fathers to their children? And at this point, I could appropriately go off on a bit of a tangent related to how children should respond to their parents and how parents should respond to their children. And that would be appropriate, but I don't think that's specifically what he has in mind here. He hasn't been talking about family dynamics here, so he's got something bigger in mind, I believe. I think what he's talking about here is this is typical of the relational restoration that he desires to see. In the Old Testament, one of the things you'll note is when things get really bad relationally and worship-wise of God, relationships within families begin to break down. Fathers begin mistreating their children. Children begin misresponding to their fathers. It gets so bad that like when the, the city of Jerusalem is under siege, you see children and fathers at war with each other, and there's even a desperation that results in cannibalism. What I think he's speaking to is there's a typical relational restoration that we see that works itself out in family dynamics. Ever since the fall in Genesis 3, our rebellion against God has resulted in relational conflict between us. And we see that particularly between children and parents, do we not? Some of you feel that more than others sitting here this morning as Kurt talked about. But the mission of this Elijah prophet will be to call for restoration, to call for heart change in those situations. Did you see it? I will send you Elijah the prophet before the awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. They will be aligned going the same direction, and they will be appropriate aligned with one another. He will call for restoration. Again, keep a pin in that. We're going to come back to that in a moment. Lastly, we see one more thing about this Elijah figure, and we see the warning of Elijah. He goes on in verse 6, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Warning, lest I come, or I will come. It's kind of the or else, if you will. And this feels like such a negative way to finish the book of Malachi. In fact, it's so negative that in the Septuagint, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, they flip verses 5 and 6 with verse 4. They read verse 5 and 6, I will come to the land a decree of utter destruction. And then they put verse 4, Remember the law of my servant Moses and the statutes and rules I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel, so that it doesn't end with this decree of utter destruction. But I think what we have here is correct. And I think there's actually an extremely positive note to be taken in this warning, in this promise. Because think about it. After, thousand, after a thousand years of working with God's people, God had called out the forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and he was faithful to them in spite of the fact that they lied and stole and cheated and wanted to walk away from him. And then God rescues his people out of the land of Egypt and saves them, and he's faithful to them in the wilderness. And what do the people do? They complain and they rebel and they're unfaithful to him. So then he ushers them into the promised land, and you have the periods of the judges and the periods of the kings, and we have one king that's decent and one king that's bad, and they go back and forth, and God is faithful to them while he or they are unfaithful to him. 
And so God brings plague and he brings famine and he brings things on them to bring their hearts back to him and they're taken into exile. And then they return and we get the book of Malachi. God is faithful to bring them back. And are the people faithful to him? No. He is still faithful to them when they have again and again and again for a thousand years been unfaithful to him. And still, God issues one final warning. Still he sends one more warning before his final judgment. He says, I will send you another prophet like Elijah before the awesome day of the Lord. God always provides for mercy and for warning before he brings judgment. So let's return to the question, who is this talking about? Well, what do we know so far? Okay, we know that this coming will be before the day of the Lord. We know that the mission of this prophet will be heart change, repentance, and restoration. And we know the warning is there will be judgment if they do not listen. Now, in all fairness, commentators are somewhat divided on this character. There's two basic explanations. The first is that this is John the Baptist. Similar to chapter 3, verse 1, the messenger that comes to prepare the way before me, they note the similarities there and they say this is who he was talking about then and it just comes to full circle. This also appears to be affirmed by the gospel writers as they refer to John as Elijah. A few things to read this afternoon. I'm not going to have time to go through them here, but Matthew 11, verse 14. Matthew 17, verses 9 through 13. Mark 9, verses 11 through 13. And Luke 1, 13 through 17. In all of these passages, the gospel writers and Christ affirm that John the Baptist was Elijah. This Elijah. However, there are also some that take this to be one of the two witnesses we read in Revelation chapter 11. If you're familiar with Revelation, you know there's two final witnesses that show up on the scene to warn the people and to call them back to repentance before God's final judgment. One of them is said to bring pegs or like plagues and pestilence, sounds very similar to Moses, and one of them is said to shut up the sky and prevent rain, sounds very similar to Elijah, if you're familiar with Elijah's story. And so they come as this final warning before the final judgment of God. So people see that sounds a lot like this, since the context is the day of the Lord, God's final coming here. It also appears that in John 1, verses 19 and 20, that John himself appears to deny that he was Elijah. The scribes and the Pharisees come to John and they say, are you the Christ? He says, no, I'm not the Christ. They say, are you then Elijah? And he says, no, I'm not. Now, I would encourage you to read some of those passages later. I think what's going on there is John is saying, I am not the one that you think I am. I did not come in the way you thought I did. But there is some merit to both of these opinions on this. I think the deciding factor comes more in the detail given in Luke 1, 67 through 68. There, Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, is allowed to speak and prophesy about Christ and John. After his mouth is opened up, he gives a prophecy there that I think bears a lot of similarity to what we find in this section. So again, I don't, some of you are already starting to glaze over with your eyes going, this debate is a bit much for me. Um, but I think there's some merit in both, though I would take this Elijah to be John the Baptist. I think he's referring to John the Baptist that is preparing the way for Christ to come. Though I must confess, I am open at least to the idea of there being a later additional fulfillment before Christ's return. We can talk more about that if you're a you know, theology nerd. I'm happy to have that discussion with you here after the service. 
Because none of this really matters if we don't understand why God even makes this final promise. See, I think this is the point. And this is why this is positive more than it is negative. What I think is being said here is that God will send his final warning, John, to prepare for his final cure, Christ, before bringing the judgment of his final day, the day of the Lord. Let me read that again. God will send his final warning to prepare for his final cure before bringing the judgment of his final day. What an incredible blessing. After a thousand years, God doesn't just say, I've had it. I'm done. I'm going to send another warning. I'm going to send a final warning. And so I think the book of Malachi and the whole Old Testament ends with a final question. What will that final day mean for you? He looks at the people and he says, if you've been reading through this book, what will that final day mean for you? What will you do with the final warning that comes? And I think that's an appropriate question for us to ask today too. We've described this great day of the Lord when God comes and it will be judgment for the wicked and it will be blessing for the righteous. What does that final day mean for you? Having read through the book of Malachi and probably felt your heart pricked by the conscience of my worship isn't this definition. It's not acceptable before God. And responding in one of two ways. Either responding in a way of saying, Lord, help me. I need your help to offer acceptable worship to you. Or responding by saying, you know, I'm not really sure this worship of God is all it's cracked up to be. The book of Malachi ends with, what will that final day mean for you? We stand now in the year 2022, the final warning has come, and we anticipate that final day any moment. What will that final day look like for you? If you haven't personally placed your faith and trust in Christ as your acceptable worship, think about the verbiage that we see here. If you've placed your hope and faith in Christ, that final day will be one of blessing, one of healing, one of safety, one of security, and one of joy. What will that final day mean for you? And that's the resounding question in the final words of the Old Testament and the final words of Malachi. He said there's this final day coming when judgment will come on the rebels and there will be joy for God's people. His final encouragement is to remember and obey, to hold on to who we know God is. And he offers this final promise of a final warning, but it also has this final cure for our sinful hearts woven into it. And so I have our key takeaway, our key point for this morning's message. And forgive me, as we bring the entire book of Malachi to a close, I actually have two key points or call it one for this message and one for the whole series, part one and part two. The first is that acceptable worship is ultimately restored in the arrival of the Messiah. We've talked about this before. What is the solution, what is the cure for the heart of the people that refuse to worship God the way he has commanded them to? He says, I will send one, and he will prepare the way for the one who will turn the hearts of the people back to me. 
And so Christ comes on the scene and says, I am seeking people who will worship God in spirit and truth, and I am the way, the truth, and the life. Worship is ultimately restored in the arrival of the Messiah. Secondly, acceptable worship is ultimately realized when Christ comes back the second time. Our hearts reading this passage should go forward to Revelation 22 and 21 and long for the day when what we've only imagined in our minds, we will see with our eyes as Christ comes back to earth and we were able to worship him the way we've always longed to but have failed to do in this life. And we read that God's dwelling place will be among man and we read that there will be no sun or moon because God's glory will be the light and we will worship him forever and ever and we will be his people and he will be our God. Acceptable worship is ultimately realized when Christ comes back. Until that day, each one of us struggles to bring our hearts in alignment with what we know we should do in response to God. And at this point, as we wrap up this series, these messages over the summer, some of you are probably thinking, but Brad, this whole series was supposed to be about worship. You haven't addressed what songs we're supposed to sing. You haven't told us what our service order should look like. You haven't specified which instruments we're allowed to use. And most importantly, you haven't answered whether or not I'm allowed to raise my hands in the worship service. For the record, the answer is yes. <laughs> but that brings us back to our original question in the series, does it not? What is the goal of our worship? What kind of worship should we be aiming for, after all? Is it about us, or is it about God? Is it about the external trappings of our worship, or is it about the heart change of offering a heart of acceptable worship to God? How do we pursue worship that is thankful rather than forgetful? Worship that is worthy rather than worthless? Worship that is truthful rather than ignorant? Faithful rather than faithless, holy rather than impure, generous rather than cheap, and hopeful rather than fickle. How do we pursue that type of worship? The book of Malachi says we keep our eyes focused on the one who came to fix our broken, sinful hearts and restore worship of God. We fix our worship not by thinking more about ourselves, but by directing our worship back to the one who it should be focused on. And we hold on to the future hope that one day, true worship will be fully realized when we see him face to face. Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. And these are the final words of the book of Malachi. These are the final words of the Old Testament as Malachi and God leave before the people, what will that final day look like for you? So I want us to wrap up this series in the same way that we began it, by reading Hebrews chapter 12, verse 28 and 29, that celebrates the incredible reality of what we have in Christ and calls us to remember how we're called to worship God. Hebrews chapter 12 verse 28 and 29, and then we'll close. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, 
For our God is a consuming fire. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the fact that you are an awesome God. That you are great and you are greatly to be praised. I pray that as we have read through and studied Malachi over these last few weeks, that you have been changing our hearts. Lord, that you have been expanding our vision of who you are. That you have been drawing our attention to you. Take our eyes off of ourselves and turn our eyes back to you, specifically to Christ. Help us to remember who he is. Help us to remember what he has done. Help us to worship him for the incredible Savior and loving Lord he is. Lord, make us true worshipers of you. For your glory and in your son's name. Amen.